Today we enter the book of Romans. This is a church that Paul did not start. Many of the churches Paul was a part of starting, but Romans, the church at Rome, he didn't. He liked them, cared for them, wanted to go visit them, um, but he, he doesn't have a lot of relationship with them. So he writes this letter, and unlike his other letters, which seem to be sort of a back and forth between him and a church that he knows well, this is in Romans a, a more of a, a planned out letter, sort of a theology, some of the richest exposition of the gospel that we get in the entire Bible. For Paul, he's trying to talk about God's mercy, and it's an amazing and undeserved gift. I mean, Paul was persecuting Christians. Remember his story? He's persecuting Christians, and on the road, he is stopped and blinded, and Jesus says, you're mine, that's it. You're mine, you're not doing that anymore. So for Paul, he really understands that he did not deserve nor did he even ask for this gift. It was thrust upon him. For Paul, God's mercy is amazing and undeserved. The wages of sin is death, but instead Jesus offers eternal life. And you better not get confused that the mercy is in any way, shape, or form due to your goodness or your inheritance because you grew up in it. Okay? It's a gift. you got to receive. Now... In these verses, starting in chapter 12, with a definitive therefore, Paul shifts his view. And he shifts from this rich theology and exploring it to application. To say, this this mercy of God that I've been developing should lead to a response. Then he wonders and describes for us, what are the implications of this truth for the way that we live? In ancient times, they understood sacrificing to the gods. I mean, in ancient peoples, they sort of knew if you were reliant on your crops to live, what are you also reliant on? The sun, right? And the rains. And if the rains didn't come or if the sun beat down too hard, then you knew that that somehow, some way, you weren't going to be able to survive. And so the assumption became that the gods were up there. Right. And we need to keep these gods happy and sacrifice to the gods. So you'd go and worship. And where do you go to worship? Well, you go on mountains and hills. Why? Because if the gods are up there, I want to get closer. And you burn things for the gods. Why? So that the smoke rises up to where the gods are to keep them happy. That was the way all ancient people thought about the gods. Up there, we better keep them happy. You read about the Roman gods, the Greek gods. You find these gods that are up there and they're angry and they get mad and they fight with each other. So it was a sacrificial system. You always had to keep the gods happy. And even the Jews had a sacrificial system. But starting in the Old Testament even, it becomes apparent that this, these gods, the God of Israel, in fact, is not obsessed with sacrifice the same way the other gods are. The psalmist says in chapter 51, verses 16 and 17, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, God will not despise. God does not want offerings. He wants the offering of your heart. For Paul, true worship and right response to the mercies of God means being a living sacrifice. Not killing an animal, not sacrificing grain, but giving of yourself. God doesn't want your stuff. He wants you. Now, all the finance people of this church just died a little inside. 
Because the pastor just said God doesn't want your offerings. No, not quite. God wants your offerings. Okay, we need your offerings, right? God, but sometimes we have a tendency to give to God as an excuse to not give God our hearts. You understand? We give and we say, okay, God, I gave you that portion or I sacrificed and gave for this or I volunteered all my time for this. I went through this. So God, this part of my heart here, leave, leave alone. And Paul will have none of that. If the mercies of God are such a gift and they're given because of why? Because Jesus gave his body. He gave himself. Then there is nothing in your life that should not be laid on the altar before God. And so God, Paul will not let you hide behind gifts and hide behind service so that you, no, 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 you give in response to this amazing thing that Christ has done in your heart. The attitude is important. True worship, spiritual worship is about giving yourself, your life, everything you are, everything you have to God as a living sacrifice. Take my whole life, Lord. After all, that's exactly what Jesus does for us. We are to lay our bodies on the altar, to give of ourselves, to say to God, you know what, God, wherever you would send me, I'll go. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. I'm yours. I'm yours. My dad gave his life to, to pastoring small churches. He was here this week helping me put books away. And I, one of the sayings he always had that stuck with me is he's, he would always pray to the Lord, Lord, Make me a tool in your toolbox. Make me a tool in your toolbox. Just put, make me a hammer, a screwdriver, whatever you need. And put me where you want me and use me how you want me to be used. Let me be a tool in your toolbox. That is offering yourself as a living sacrifice. Giving of your life. So it begins with God's mercy. And in response to God's mercy, you sacrifice. You give of yourself as a living sacrifice. But Paul keeps going. There's sort of a process here. The mercies of God, followed by our response of sacrificing our lives to God. But now, in light of that mercy, he says some other things. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The connotation here is that if you, guys, if you and I aren't careful, then we can be too conformed to the world. We look like the world. Have you ever been to a neighborhood where all the houses are exactly the same? You ever been to those neighborhoods in the suburbs where somebody just built a whole bunch of houses that are all exactly the same with the same color patterns and everything and everybody lives in the same houses? It's tempting for us in our lives to look just like the world, to just look like everybody around us, to act like that, to think like that. It's too easy for us to be conformed to the world. Paul says we shouldn't do that. In view of God's mercy, if we're really offering ourselves a sacrifice, we ought to be something different. We ought to be transformed. Transformed. And the word transformed is a word you would know. It's the word metamorphosis. Okay? It's the Greek word not just for a little change. Okay? Like a little change like getting a different hairstyle. No, 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 no. That's not metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is this long, intricate, beautiful transformation like that of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. That's one of the most amazing. Have you ever gotten to really watch that process? Where this little thing that just inches along everywhere goes into a cocoon and stays there a long time, holds still, and comes out something very different. A butterfly. 
They don't even look the same, right? That's what, that's what Paul says that should happen to you and to me. That when we sacrifice ourselves to God, we are transformed into something new. And it's not immediate. It's not immediate. It's a long, drawn-out process. Piece by piece, we change. But we should change. And how do we change? How do we change? Well, the Holy Spirit is involved in our life. But Paul describes here a particular way that we are transformed. And that is by the renewing of our mind. There's a mental process where our mind has to change, our thinking has to change. I think, I think one of the best ways to describe this is, is not in the Bible, but it's by the great philosopher Plato. And uh, don't be impressed that I quote Plato. This is the only Plato I know. And I'm much more familiar with Plato than Plato. <laughs> but one story of Plato I really do appreciate. It's called the Allegory of a Cave. Plato in his teaching is, is uh, imagining what it would be like for there to be a cave. And there are people, let's imagine this is the back of the cave, and, and people are strapped in so that all they can see is the back of the cave their whole lives. All they see is the back of this cave. And it, in the front of the cave, there's an entrance, and then also by the entrance, there's a fire. So all the time, there's some kind of light shining on the back of this cave. And between these people that are strapped in to the shadows and the light, there's a road. And so people travel along this road in the mountain and uh, their shadows pass in front of the light. Uh, and many of them are even puppeteers. So they have strange objects to go across. And so these people have lived their whole lives looking at the back of the cave and seeing shadows pass over. Shadows and shadows. That's all they know. They, all they know is the shadows on the back of the wall. But Plato says, what if one day they were released? So they weren't, didn't have to stay looking at the wall. Wouldn't they instantly turn around and say, oh, look, those aren't shadows. They're, those are shadows. Those aren't real things. The real things are out here. No, it would take them a long time to look around, right? To even know there should be something back there. Probably a lot of people wouldn't look back. They would just stick with what they knew. But some would turn around and start to realize, and there'd be this process of, oh, that's not real. That's just a shadow of this world. And how many people would actually leave the cave, actually see the wide world beyond what they had known their whole lives? Very few. Plato uses this to talk about enlightenment, that this is what philosophers do. They understand more of the world, and then they go back to try to teach other people to get them out of the cave of their lack of knowledge. And some people won't go because that's all they've ever known. Now, Paul is influenced by Greco-Roman thought. He's a Jewish Pharisee, but he's also a Roman intellect. And he's probably heard kind of similar stories like this. But for Paul, it's not enlightenment. It's Jesus that frees you from the back of the cave and starts to change your mind. But it seems to be a very similar process as what Paul's trying to get at here. You have to renew your mind. See, you are conformed to the world. You're used to seeing the world this way. But there's a process you take where your mind is renewed. Where God's word fills you, where God's spirit leads you, and your thinking changes. And as your thinking changes, then you're transformed into something or someone new. This doesn't happen all at once. Just like those people that had only known the back of the cave. You don't even know that you need to know something else. Sometimes it takes a long time to realize it. And I don't think it's a process that's ever finished this side of heaven. But I can tell you from Paul's language here that he seems to assume that not everybody goes on the journey, right? 
He's trying to encourage you to renew your mind. That means some people just say, nope, I like my wall. I like my cave. I like my shadows. I don't want to change my thinking. Do you, how many of you know people like that? They don't want to change their thinking at all. Don't want to be exposed to any other news stations because this is the news station I agree with, right? We don't like, we like to try to change everybody else's thinking. We don't really like to change our thinking. Some people don't go through the process. That's my experience too. But as Paul puts it in other places, we need to go through it. We need to throw off our old self and put on a new self. We need to be transformed into something else. And some of that process happens with our mind, with our thinking. And what is the result, right? So we've got the mercies of God that we sacrifice our lives to, that then we're transformed by this process of renewing my mind. But to what point? Paul says that the point is discernment. So that you can discern the will of God, the perfect, holy, right will. We're back to what I talked about last week, that you and I are never meant to make decisions by analyzing, okay? We don't make decisions by being logical. It's not about thinking and it's not about our feeling either. It's about something else, okay? It's about discerning. What is God's will and kind of getting it in us? My dad always talks about it as you got to know when you're knower, which is about as good a description as I've heard of it. It's not what you feel. Sometimes it's beyond what you feel. It's not what you think. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. But you got to know when you're knower what God's will is. Well, how do you get there? You renew your mind. You train your mind on the things of God. And as you become a different person, you're transformed in your mind and your thinking is different. Then God's will becomes apparent to you. There's this process that needs to take place. So what do you discern then? Paul keeps going. He develops this process. What do you have to discern once you're transformed by Christ when you're renewing your mind? What's the first thing you got to do when you come out of the cocoon? You gotta stretch your wings. You gotta look at yourself and say, Who am I? Who am I? What has God gifted me to do? You gotta say, Well, well, if I'm not this person in the back of the cave and there's way more to this world, then who am I in this world? So Paul uses the idea of gifts to talk about that. That God gives you gifts and abilities and strengths and passions. And you better know they're not all from God, right? You're probably good at some things. You shouldn't be good at. You probably have some passion for things that you ought not to have passions for. Sometimes our gifts and our passions are corrupted by sin. But that God gifts. He gives you strengths and abilities and passions that you're supposed to work on. Like a butterfly. Oh, I'm made for flight. I'm made for flight. You got to figure out who you are. And Paul gives some instructions for this. First of all, you need to not look at yourself too highly or too lowly. Okay? There's got to be some humility when you start looking at yourself honestly after your transformation in Christ. Who am I really? Because you're not nothing, you're something, but you're also not everything. And you better try to balance those two. Uh, my professor, Dr. Len Sweet, in his office where he goes in his house to write, and he's written a lot of books. Um, he has a ship door, like off of an old ship. And he has it because it comes off the floor and it also comes down from the ceiling. And he likes it because he's got to both bow his head and step up to get through the door. You got to bow your head and step up. And I love that image. Okay, you can't think too lowly of yourself. You got to step up into the things that God has prepared for you to do. But you don't want to think it's all up to you either. So you better bow your head. 
uh, bow and step up. That's the process. Not, how does Paul say it? Don't think too lowly. Don't think too highly. Think just right in the middle there about who you really are in Christ. Number two, Paul says that we all have special gifts and strengths. We're wired with passions, abilities, tendencies, nuances. And we've got to discover what we're good at. If you think you're good at everything, you're not. What are you really, really good at? What has God gifted you to do in the church? And you might actually be surprised what it is. And spiritual gifts, I think, are sometimes different than normal gifts. You may be good at something. Um, This is always an example. Um, A lot of people who are teachers think they have the gift of teaching. Well, you may have gifts of teaching. You may be good at teaching. That doesn't mean you have the spiritual gift of teaching. Spiritual gift of teaching involves teaching spiritual things and teaching the Bible. So maybe what makes you a good teacher isn't a spiritual gift of teaching. Maybe it's a different spiritual gift that shows up in a different way. Or maybe it is teaching. I don't know. But they're not exactly the same. See, you've got to take time to discern these things. Who am I? What am I good at? But Paul makes an important third piece about this is that you don't just have gifts for yourself. You have gifts for the community. And Paul goes back to one of his favorite metaphors, and that is that of a body. That uh, right now I'm being a mouth, right? Right now you're playing the role of ears, but after you leave here, you might be legs, you might be feet. I don't know what you're going to be when you walk out of here. But that we each have a part to play. and that our, so, so we don't just discern our gifts, you understand that? Our gifts meld together. Our gifts fit together into one body. So it's not just you. It's you plus everybody else. This is why it's really important to be a part of a church. Because what, kind of, what kind of body are you if you're just a hand out there by yourself? Okay? The body belongs to each other. Paul says these gifts are given to us in community. That we fit together. So it's not just discerning, oh, I'm a butterfly. What am I good at? It's also, where do I fit in this body? As we are transformed, we go through that process. So, there, so let me go over the process again. The mercies of God is where it starts. The never starts with us, always starts with God's grace. And we respond to that by laying ourselves down as living sacrifices before the altar. We present our bodies, but then we go through this process of being transformed by renewing our minds. We come out of the cave and see our world differently, which leads us to a, this process of discernment. And this discernment happens, uh, especially starting with ourselves. Who are we? What are our gifts? And here's what I've found. And this is not Paul. This is more Jordan. Although I think he's applying it in here a bit. But I think it's still true. That the same process that Paul's describing here for personal transformation is actually what churches go through too. I think churches go through this same thing, or they need to every so often. That sometimes we as a church need to be reminded of the mercies of God that we didn't do ourselves, but were given to us as a gift. And we need to respond by laying our church down on the altar of God. We have a tendency to call this our church. Our church. What's God's church? And God can do with this church what he wants. Lord, put our church on the altar now, and we present our church as a living sacrifice. We present our Sunday school classes as living sacrifices. We present our committee. Lord, whatever you want to do here, here you go. And you know what God does? He transforms us. He changes and shapes us into something new. And part of that process as a church is renewing our minds. Is learning to think differently about church. Learning to think differently about the world. And it's scary sometimes, but, but we keep trudging along. Trusting in the mercies of God the whole way. 
We need to rethink who Jesus is and what it means to be a church in the world we live in now and, and how different our community is than it was 20 years ago. And maybe that means different things for how to be a church and how to be salt and light in this place. And then we start to discern. And you know where discernment starts? What are we good at? What has God gifted us to do? What are the butterfly wings of this church? What are we good at? What has God gifted us and given us opportunity to do? Now, can we follow those things? And how do we all fit together? And that's a really interesting question when there's a bunch of new faces out here, right? What are the new gifts? What are the new abilities? How do we fit together? How, how do we as a church combine to do the things that God has set out for us to do? You need this process. I need this process. This church needs this process. And it is my prayer that we all individually and as members of one body be transformed by the mercies of Christ so that we can be faithful worshipers to God in our lives. Amen.